Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word for us this morning. May he give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Father, again, we turn to you and ask that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear and receive and believe and comprehend your holy word, that, Father, it may take root down deep in us and bear fruit unto eternal life, the fruit of the Spirit that demonstrates that we are your children and that you are at work in us to glorify yourself and to praise the name of Jesus, our Savior, in which we pray. Amen. So we have come this morning to part four of the autumn series, Our Ancient Foe. And as this is about the midway point, I want to take just a few moments to kind of review before we move on, especially since last week just felt out of sync somehow and, and kind of got to a point in the middle of the sermon and thought, I kind of want to go back and start that over again, but I didn't think that would be good, so I didn't. But um, I just want to go back and review just a little bit. In part one, we considered the reality the existence of our adversary, that old serpent named our ancient foe by Martin Luther in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, hence the banner for this series. And at that time, we noted that not only is our enemy real, our enemy, our adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And because these things are true, because our adversary is real, and because our adversary is out to destroy us, it is required of us as the people of God that we would actively stand against him, that we would resist him firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. So as we noted a few weeks back, the Christian life is lived in a war zone. Now, it's not a popular concept in most quarters of the church these days. We'd like to think that we will be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, to borrow a line from one of the hymn writers, but we won't. 
We are in a battle. We are in a struggle. Our Heidelberg Catechism makes this abundantly clear on Lord's Day 52 when we are taught that our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And just so you won't think that that's some kind of a you know, spiritual warfare thing, that it's you know, just from those days back in the 80s and 90s, that's the Heidelberg Catechism. That's one of the three forms of unity that, that we hold up as a proper understanding of Scripture. Our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And not only that, the Heidelberg also teaches us that by ourselves we are too weak to hold our own, even for a moment. Now, if you might wonder whether or not that's true, Jude, verse 9, tells us when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael, the archangel, didn't turn to the devil and say, Satan, you are so stupid. Just go away. He didn't bring a reviling accusation. He said, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, rebuke you. And my sense here is that if Michael the archangel did not dare to rebuke the devil and bring a reviling accusation against him, then who am I? Who am I to call him out in my own strength? Who is anyone short of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? So the question becomes, how are we to stand then? How are we to stand against this powerful adversary? How are our lives, which are numbered in mere decades, are, how are we going to fight against the enemy who has millennia of practice in seeking to remove the people of God from the field of battle in disgrace and defeat? Well, it starts, as we said, by recognizing the reality of the battle. It should go without saying, but maybe it doesn't, that we cannot effectively stand and resist a foe whose very existence we tend to doubt. But the truth is, all of those things in God's word, all of those stories about the devil and about hell and about spiritual warfare, those are not just fables and myths that were given to us so that we can scare the children and say, hey, be good or else the devil's going to get you. They're the truth. They're the truth of this world in which we live. And if we're going to stand and resist Satan firm in our faith, part of that faith has to involve acknowledging that he is real and that this battle is real. The second thing, we have to be the children of God. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand when someone who is not born again by the Spirit of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, tries to stand against the devil, they will fail. You can't fight the devil if you're actually on his side, and that's the case if you have not come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and been born of his Spirit. The third thing is we need to recognize that his tactics have never changed. And so we have in Scripture this amazing resource to sort of clue us in as to how we need to face the attacks of the evil one and what form those attacks may take. We saw last Lord's Day 
that Satan came to Adam and Eve just, first of all, questioning the word of God. He asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He just raises that question. Did God say that? What do you think he meant when he said that? Do you, do you think he was really serious about it? He raises these questions and Eve begins to ponder and Adam, who's standing at her shoulder too, and then after raising the question, he immediately went on to deny the word, to insinuate, no, you will not surely die, to insinuate that the Lord God was lying to his children, that there was some aspect of joy and satisfaction that they might be able to experience, but God's withholding it from them, and the only way they're really going to get through to that joy, that satisfaction, that fullness of life is to go their own way and not submit to his will. This is how Satan worked in the beginning, in the garden, and his methods have never changed. And that brings us to our text this morning, because in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, Mark uses a stronger word. Mark wrote that after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, language is reminiscent of Genesis 3.24, where the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the same word to tell us that God drove out the man from the Garden of Eden. The thing is, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are being driven out of the perfect environment of paradise because they have broken covenant with God and have fallen into sin. But in Mark 1 and Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus... The last Adam is being driven into the wilderness, not for his own sin, but for ours. The perfect man didn't need to be driven into the wilderness like fallen man did. Jesus had every right to paradise. And yet the Spirit drove him into the wilderness for our sake. He was driven into the wilderness to meet Satan on his own ground so that, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That $40 word there, propitiation, just means to turn aside the wrath of God that was justly aimed at the sins of the people. It's a good word, and it's a word we need to reclaim because it gets left out of most modern translations. But Jesus came to make propitiation. He came to turn aside the wrath of God that was directed at the sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness because what was about to happen, this contest between Jesus and Satan, was a contest that needed to happen. And really, it's a, a, a short version, symbolic, of what was happening throughout the entirety of Jesus' life. The Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 37, what do you understand by the word suffered? And we are taught there, as in Scripture, that during his whole life on earth, but especially on the cross, 
But during his whole life on earth, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to be talking about false teachers in the next couple of weeks. And there is one very prominent, formerly evangelical false teacher who did a tour all around North America, and the title of his tour is The Gods Are Not Angry. And in that tour, he said, God is not angry at us because of our sin. Well, I beg to differ. Scripture says that he is. That's why Christ had to come to turn aside God's wrath. And our confession makes that abundantly clear as well, that throughout Jesus' life, he was experiencing wrath that was not his due, but was ours. And so here at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus, driven by the Holy Spirit, goes into a place where he, in his true humanity, would suffer, being tempted as we are in every respect and yet without sin. So there are similarities here. He was tempted as we are in every respect, and there are differences, the most obvious being he did it and did not sin. But notice the similarities and the differences. At the end of Luke 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 2, we're told that Jesus ate nothing during those days. Um, and when they were ended, he was hungry, as anyone would be, Right? I mean, go figure. You go for 40 days without eating anything, and you're going to be hungry. Now, the reason I highlight that is because Satan first approaches Jesus through a legitimate human need. There is nothing inherently sinful about being hungry when you have not had adequate food. And this, too, is a pattern with him. Whether it's our appetite for food or our desire for meaning and fulfillment or our inclination to, let's just call it romance, there's nothing inherently sinful about human desire. We might even recall that the temptation of Adam and Eve also involved food. Now, we've no reason to think that Adam and Eve were going hungry. If they were hungry, the whole world was before them. But in both cases, watch how Satan turns a legitimate appetite, a legitimate human desire into an occasion for temptation. Luke 4, verse 3, the devil said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So, you're hungry, said the devil. Fair enough. The thing is, you have the power in yourself to do something about this. Just again, we'll be talking about this down the road a little ways, but when somebody comes along and says, you have the power in yourself, don't believe them. Jesus actually did. But it's not true when somebody starts claiming that we have this power in ourselves. And watch what Satan does. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And right there, if, if you are the Son of God. 
Well, we didn't read it earlier, but look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Now, Jesus is in the river. The Spirit is descending in the form of a dove, so we know who this voice is. And this voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Have you ever put those two texts together before? They come back to back in the Gospels. Just 40 days before this temptation in the wilderness, Jesus was standing with John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and God spoke from heaven, saying, You are my beloved son. And then along comes the devil, not even a month and a half later, and he says, If you are the Son of God, why don't you prove it? Prove it to me, prove it to the world. Prove it to yourself. After all, would a loving father who was really well pleased with his son drive him into the wilderness and starve him for 40 days? Really? Does that seem like the sort of thing that a loving God would do? Seems more like child abuse to me. So once again, from Satan's mouth to Jesus' ear, it's as if the devil is questioning the word. Did God actually say, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased? Really? Did he say that? And then verse 4, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew's account, of course, is a little bit more expansive. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan questions the word spoken by the Father. If you are the Son of God, I know, I know he said you were, but if that's really true, and Jesus responds with more of God's word. He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. And really, I think it's like he was saying, Satan, you know what? The best way for me to prove that I am God's beloved Son it's just to trust the word that he has spoken and to do the will of the Father who sent me. What better answer could be given then or now? God has spoken. That's all the proof we need. Too bad Adam and Eve didn't stand in that same way when Satan came along and said, did God actually say that you, would surely, you will not surely die? All they needed to do was turn to the serpent and say, actually, God spoke, and we trust him, so yes, we would surely die. That's the answer, the word of the living God. And that's what Satan was given by Jesus, but he was not through. First John chapter 2 identifies for us all that is in the world. And it says that that is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And we could think of these three things as the temptations that are common to all, as Paul speaks of them in 1 Corinthians 10. And when the desires of the flesh 
Jesus' natural hunger after fasting for 40 days didn't work to pull him into sin, Satan turned to the second flaming dart in his quiver, the desire of the eyes. You'll notice that Matthew and Luke put these last two in different order, but it's not important what order they're in. In Luke chapter 4, verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I don't want to take too much time on this. Actually, I do. I want to preach a whole sermon on this, but we're already well into this one, so I won't. We'll take a little bit of time here to stop and remember what Jesus said of Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus said there, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And nowhere was that ever more true than when Satan claimed to be able to give the authority and glory of the nations and the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. Now, some have thought that maybe there was a legitimacy to the offer because Jesus didn't get into an argument about it. So why wouldn't he have just said, hey, Satan, you can't do that. They're not yours to give. And they've taken that and combined it with the idea that Satan is the god of this world, which it turns out that world there is just a really horrible translation of the word eon or age. And they've said that Satan is the God of this world and therefore is making some sort of a legitimate offer to Jesus. But think for just a minute about the fall of man again in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, the serpent, comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve and they rebelled. What did they rebel against? They rebelled against the authority of God. They rebelled against the authority of God. Satan came along, and the theory is that in this transaction, Satan somehow usurped Adam's authority and became the God of this world. And of course, that's why God shows up in the very next verse in Genesis 3 and says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? I guess, I guess now that Adam gave authority to the serpent, he's in charge, and I'll just have to move out and leave the creation to him, which of course is pure nonsense. That is not what happened. Adam and Eve rebelled against the authority of the Lord God, and then the Lord God, with all of his authority, stepped in, and he drove them from the garden, and he cursed the serpent to eat dust until the day came when his son, Jesus Christ our Savior, would show up and finish him off. That's what happened. Satan didn't usurp any authority. He has no legal right to anything in this creation. God is still God, and Jesus Christ, his Son, our Savior, is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why in Exodus 19, verse 5, long after the fall of man, God said, all the earth is mine, period. And just in case that's not enough, Deuteronomy 10 Verse 14, indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Same word that's used in Genesis. Also, the earth with all that is in it. 
And again, just in case that's not enough, Job 41, verse 11, God is speaking. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Is, was, always, will be. Or maybe Psalm 24. Sorry. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of the world and everyone who dwells in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God has the right of the creator over all things. It is his universe. It always has been. And Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and he has the right of it. I could go on, but really I think that's why Satan and Jesus didn't get into a big kerfuffle over this. Because they both knew. They both knew that it wasn't remotely true. Just days before, God had said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And centuries before that, in Psalm 2, he said, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In the New Testament, this is consistently applied to Jesus Christ. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. Ask of the Lord God. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus knew the word of God. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he knew the word of God. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth, for your possession. So why worship the devil on an empty promise? It is what Satan always does. He comes along and he says, oh, think of the satisfaction I can give you. You'll just get on the internet and look at that website you shouldn't look at. Think of how fulfilled your life would be if you would just throw away all the time that you might otherwise spend worshiping and serving God and focus on yourself and making money and having things. He offers these prizes and they are empty promises he cannot deliver. They are not his to deliver. And Jesus comes along and he said, I'm not even going to argue about this. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Seems pretty straightforward, really. But again, Satan was not through. There was that pride of life thing. He's tried the desires of the flesh, he's tried the desires of the eyes, and now he moves on to the pride of life. So the devil returned to his first line of attack. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but comes along, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, again, if you are, the, if really, for sure? Yeah, I know, that whole bread thing, you know, didn't turn out the way I was hoping, but let's try this again. If you are the son of God, prove it. Throw yourself down from here. But on this occasion, the devil not only questioned the word of God, which he does very effectively, he quoted it as he had done when he first confronted Eve. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So if you throw yourself down, angels, <laughs> angels are going to come and they're going to catch you and lower you to the pavement and all the world will see. And wouldn't it be nice, Jesus? Wouldn't it feel good to know for sure, to lose that if, to settle once and for all this matter of whether or not you, of all people, are really God's beloved son? And then in verse 12, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now some have taken this to be Jesus rebuking Satan. As if what Jesus is saying here is, look Satan, I am the Lord your God, so just stop it. Stop testing me. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think it's far simpler than that. I think Jesus responded as he had done all along. Satan was tempting Jesus to put the Lord his God to the test by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. But Jesus knew the will of God. He knew that was not the will of God. And so he quoted God's will from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, Jesus comes along and he says, I'll, I'll prove that I am God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased and I'll do it by obeying his word, by submitting to his will for my life. Jesus had done what the word of God itself prescribed in Psalm 119, verse 11. He had hidden God's word in his heart. Remember, he's out there in the wilderness with the wild animals and the demons and Satan himself. He doesn't have his you know, ESV study Bible or his app on his phone so that he can check the concordance and figure out which verse would be appropriate in this case to speak to this particular temptation. He had memorized the scriptures. It's apparently true that most young Jewish boys and young men had memorized at the very least the entirety of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the law of God. He had hidden it in his heart. And so when Satan comes to him with these fiery darts and these temptations, he's able to pull that sword from its sheath and to wield it. To wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and in so doing to make his stand against the schemes of the devil. And as Jesus comes back with the Word time and time again, well, we find that the devil, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Just like James wrote in chapter 4, verse 7 of his letter, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's exactly what Jesus did. He submitted to God. He obeyed the word, and his obedience was offered up as resistance to the temptations that he faced, and Satan fled away. Now, one other thing about Jesus' use of the word here, he did not use the word as an incantation against evil. There are some books that have suggested that really just start reading the Bible anywhere, anywhere in the Bible. Just start reading the Bible, and Satan doesn't like the Bible, and he's going to run away because you're reading the Bible to him. 
But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't use God's word as an incantation against evil. He didn't simply start quoting the Psalms to quiet his mind in the midst of that temptation. He quoted the relevant passages of God's law. At the very point where Satan was assaulting him, Jesus pulled out the scripture. Satan said, if you are the son of God, Jesus said, I know I am the son of God because man shall not live by every word, by, by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan said, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll just fall down and worship me. Jesus didn't even need to argue about whether the kingdoms were Satan's to give. He just said, hey, God's word says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then Satan said again, if you are the son of God, why don't you apply scripture? Take these psalms out of context as promises and then throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple depending on God to actually honor a promise that you're misapplying to a situation that you're not in. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. He comes along with the word and he confronts Satan at the very point where Satan is confronting the word of God. He quoted the relevant passages of God's law, and then having quoted them, he obeyed them. He didn't just throw the scripture out and say, hey, you know, it says in the Bible that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But, you know, I've heard the word of God, so no, I think I'll go for the bread. He threw the word at Satan, and then he obeyed it. He resisted the devil by submitting to the will of God, and the devil was forced to flee. And here's the big idea this morning. We are called to resist in the same way exactly. Our sworn enemy is the devil. Yeah, he's out there still. The world, see it all around us every time we turn on the TV or the Internet, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And we are called as the people of God to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is his word of truth, to defend ourselves by submission to the word and the will of God. And it doesn't matter if the temptation comes from Satan, from the world, or our own flesh. Whatever the source of that temptation may be, the answer is not just dig in and white-knuckle it and have a little more willpower and you can get through this. It may work for a little while, but it won't work for long. And the answer is to hear God's word and to know God's word, to believe God's word, to hide God's word in our heart. And then when that temptation comes, whatever it is and wherever it comes from, to bring out the word, and to obey it, to be a doer of the word, not a hearer, only deceiving ourselves. So let me close this morning with the word itself, a word that I think would have been very, very familiar to Jesus, one that was read in the synagogues of his youth. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man or a young woman, or an old man, or an old woman, or a child, or any human being for that matter, keep his way pure. How? By guarding it, guarding his way according to God's word. 
with my whole heart. I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Watch the parallelisms. I am seeking God with my whole heart. Where will I find him? I will find him in his word. I will find him in his commandments and in his law and in his testimonies. I have stored up your word in my heart. I like that. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee was the King James Version that I memorized as a kid. But I have stored up. So it's not just a matter of, of memorizing you know, a little bit of it. It's just like put it in there and pack it down and then put some more of it in there. And I have stored up God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. That's what Jesus was doing in the confrontation with Satan. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. That's also what Jesus was doing when faced with the temptation of the devil. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. May God give us grace to treasure it, to store it up in our hearts so that we can stand against the fiery darts of the evil one and having done all to stand. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word and spirit. Draw us near to you. Give us grace to submit always to you and in so doing to resist the devil that he may flee from us and that the temptations we face may be overcome not through our own strength or cleverness but rather through the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior and the grace that he has shown us in dying for us on the cross. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.